Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. Oh, I see. Yeah, I'm still recording. You're right. And Daryl, you can record also. There we go. Yeah, I'm recording. Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> we talked about this last week, but uh, uh, John thought we should talk about it again. Uh, uh, the fact that uh, chronic disease and death uh, is related to uh, plastic chemicals uh, is something that uh, we talked about uh, last weekend. I guess the issue is that the Nanoplastics are so, so small, they invade the body cells and we don't seem to be aware of it. And it's causing obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. And uh, what are we gonna do about it? That's really the question. How in the world can you overcome it? And uh, so uh, uh, some people talked last week about, uh, I think I think Daryl talked about uh, having uh, Putting water in, uh, what did you put it in, uh, uh, Daryl? Um, well, I don't know. I'll keep talking. I'll pick up the thread. Well, remember, <laughs> you had mentioned that that uh, you didn't use plastic for your water, but you used, you put it in another kind of container. Of oh, water. yeah. Uh, steel line container. Steel line yeah. water bottle. Yeah, that's right. And so they are. Uh, other ways of doing it, but but first you got to re recognize it's a problem because most most of the water comes in plastic containers, and uh, you know we we buy all of those uh, dis distilled water things, and they all come in plastic containers, and all of the plastic has these nano nano products that uh, are getting into our blood and are causing us to be diseased. Uh, and uh, so this is a, something that is frightening. And I think uh, as we closed last week, we talked about uh, what are you going to do? And, uh, and, and any time you, you microwave anything with, that just got plastic, it gets in your food and mm -hmm. gets in your system. And uh, so, and of course, they're suggesting that this is one of the major reasons why we're so fat. Half, half of the American population is overweight, and a third of them are morbidly obese. So, uh, uh, and then they talk about the phthalates that are causing all kinds of uh, issues relative to reproductive malformations and undescended testes and other things. So, and the phthalates are found in just about everything you can imagine, and so. Uh, how are we going to overcome this? You know, yeah, it takes, a, it takes a lot of diligence to overcome it. And uh, I've been traveling the last three weeks. Um, uh, so I didn't bring a water bottle with me. And to get water at the airport, you got to drink, you know, you got to buy a bottle of water. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. They, they really got us. And I think the problem is that they weren't aware of the fact of a, we hope they weren't aware of the fact of how dangerous uh, it was going to be because they didn't know about all these nanoparticles at the time. 
Yeah. Uh, um, back up. And earlier in that article, it was talking about uh, makeup as being yeah. a major source of phylates. Right. right. And, right. you know, there's some uh, healthy makeup that you can buy. Um, I don't know what the price of it is because I don't wear makeup. But um, if you if you track the ingredients in most common makeups, it's um, there's a lot of toxins in makeups. Hmm. Uh, one thing that we didn't talk about last week, um, I mean, the last time we talked about this, about when you're taking medicine by capsule, um, the cat the medicine is inside of plastic capsule is that correct i don't know what the capsule is i uh, have to answer that question it's plastic no uh i don't know no it's not plastic i think it's psyllium isn't it no, i don't know no. the answer to that question so. i think it's gelatin Somebody. yeah it's gelatin right yeah we we'll have to do some research on that um, when I, when I encapsulate herbs, I use, it's, it's all, a, it looks just like the, uh, the capsules that you get, uh, your pharmaceuticals in, but it's all, uh, it's all vegetable product that I use. I don't know what's commercially available, but what I use is all vegetable product. I doubt that it's plastic, but uh, I don't know the answer, but it's clear that we have a, situation that uh, really has not been addressed satisfactorily yet. And that uh, virtually everything that we uh, we do is associated with uh, uh, nanoplastics. And uh, so this is what this is something that we have to try to uh, overcome. We haven't we haven't found a solution yet. So the next papers we need to look for are not what the problem is, but what is the solution? And uh, that's something that we have not come around. But it's clear now that we uh, have uncovered another uh, toxin that uh, we were, uh, were unaware of. And that toxic is water bottles of plastic, so. Uh, Google says that capsules are made up of gelatin, hard or soft and non-gelatin shell, shells generally derived from hydrolysis of collagen from animal origin or cellulose-based. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you. Okay, let's go to the next one. Um, just one last thing. Um, I'm trying in our home to eliminate the plastic, like the microwave cover. I went and got a glass microwave cover I stop plastic cups and getting um, paper cups rather, but so much stuff in our my household, our household is made of plastic when it comes to cooking and containers to put up stuff. So then I got containers that were glass. You know, they got rid of the corningware, and that was all glass. So <clears throat> it's just trying to find something to store your food up in. But those little plastic containers, it's so cute and so convenient to use to store your food. But we're trying one thing at a time. But of course, when you go to grocery store, there's plastic everywhere. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 
this article is talking about sparkling water. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't really know much about it. I know about the carbonated soda industry, which is uh, remarkable in terms of its uh, expansion. But seltzer water uh, can occur naturally, as we, we know. And uh, the question is, uh, is that safe? And uh, I guess the answer to that question is that uh, probably as long as you don't use the artificial sweetness, that uh, it's a good choice. Um. What doctor told me that um, carbonated be uh, beverages cause gas? Yeah. Well, and I guess the the uh, yeah, I guess they can cause gas because the principle is it's gas in water. So. Mm -hmm. But seltzer water is uh, apparently uh, and this says it can make acid reflux worse, so I don't know how it works for people who have GERDs. Uh, and you got to keep in mind that most of the sparkling water comes in plastic bottles. <laughs> Yeah. So you can make your own. Make your own what? Seltzer water. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have a machine that does that. You buy the um uh it's a compressed bottle of gas and you put it in the machine and Put water in there and it put, puts uh it makes the water carbonated. Uh -huh. Is the machine made that? of plastic? Say it again. Is the machine made of plastic? The machine is, yes. What? I was just what thinking about my food processor that I truly love and is made of plastic. What what does it do for the taste, John? Well, it it it, it doesn't affect the taste at all, but you know they they come with uh, all kind of uh, uh, fruit Flavor. fruit flavors you can add to it. You know. Oh, I see. Okay. They come in separate bottles, so you put that in there and put it in the fridge, and just like making your own soda or fruit punch, sparkling fruit punch, whatever. But now I'm thinking about it. I never thought about it in this way. Okay, let's go to the next one. Oh yeah, this is very similar to the article we did last week that talks about how uh, increasing plant-based protein uh, just eliminates the amount of uh, refined uh, carbohydrate and uh, unhealthy fat that is in your in your meat, and so there's uh, many reasons why. Uh, plant proteins are preferred over animal protein. 
Uh, and uh, uh, there's no question that animal fat does give you all of the amino acids that you need. It's just that they also have in there the unhealthy uh, fat as well as uh, refined uh, carbohydrate that is not so good for you. So that if you had a choice, uh, of course, lean meat is good, uh, but if you had a choice, the uh, plant protein seems to be better for you than the animal protein, although uh, lean uh, meat is uh, uh, just probably just as good. Uh, but uh, that's uh, a subject that uh, has been uh, researched very well. Actually, this study I'm talking about here, they studied uh, uh, thousands of, of, of women, actually. And uh, the, 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 the question I had is, if it's good for women, uh, why don't we recommend it for men also? Uh, women live longer than men. Uh, and, uh, uh, so if it's good for women, then it must be twice as good for men. But anyway, but, but the, the study was done in women. And it pointed out that uh, uh, the plant-based protein for every uh, three grams of plant protein that you, you took instead of animal protein uh, made you healthier. And it pointed out that uh, the uh, diseases that are associated with uh, animal protein uh, actually are at least... Uh, uh, seven or eight cancers. And these are the products that they think are most beneficial for plant-based protein. Uh, what, beans and nuts are two of the uh -huh. things that are it's, it's amazing how important the, uh, the beans are in terms of the chia seeds and the lentils, chuck peas, so all of those are the ones that are the richest in protein. Uh, and, uh, and number, yeah, go ahead, Daryl. Number two on the list, chickpeas. That's got the 14 and a half grams of protein per cut, and that's the leading source of protein. And it, it, it is a bean. It's called garbanzo bean, but it's very mild, doesn't create... Uh, creates hardly any gas at all, you know, as opposed to things like lentils, navy beans, uh, black beans. Um, and you can serve it in a variety of different recipes. Uh, so if you're not into chickpeas, you might want to check it out. Okay. Uh, the cancers it's associated with uh, are actually the uh, uh, prostate cancer, um, breast cancer uh, and uh, colon cancer. Uh, there's about seven or eight cancers that are associated with uh, with the animal protein and that are not associated with the vegetable proteins. So uh, it's, it's very clear that uh, as you look for a healthy diet, diets that are associated with vegetables and fruit are, are most desirable. And uh, it, it doesn't require that you eliminate meat, but it just requires that you try to, if you're going to eat meat, eat 
lean meat. Uh, uh, but uh, if push comes to shove, you're better off with the uh, plant-based proteins. What are your thoughts about this, Drew? Uh, we've had enough articles on it now. Uh, wh what are your thoughts? These are, the, these are the data that they've shown us that uh, are overwhelming from the research. Here. What are your thoughts about it? I definitely, good morning, everyone. Um, I definitely have been eating more salads since I started listening to the group. Um, not as many meats as I normally do. I, I love salad and I've been eating more of it. That's a start. <laughs> Any other comments? Uh, good morning. So I hear a lot of I hear a lot of people saying they eat a lot of salads, but it's according what you put on that salad can be just <laughs> as detrimental as eating a lot of meat. So if you're adding a lot of fats and et cetera to it, and I don't know, I could add someone, is lettuce really that much better for you? Because I've heard that it has practically nothing in it's, lettuce it's, it's to not really the, help. It's not the lettuce, it's what you put on the lettuce. It's the salad dressings. And so you need to look at what uh, salad dressings you use because they're very healthy salad dressings, but they're also very unhealthy salad dressings that possess a lot of, a lot of cholesterol that's undesirable, the so-called unhealthy fats. Yeah, uh, Carol, what you're talking about is iceberg lettuce, which doesn't, which has far fewer nutrients than things like romaine, arugula, uh, or or other or other greens. Any other comments? Oh, and what about spinach? For a while, they had something alarming about adding spinach. Spinach is a thought to be. Uh, May, it may have oxalates in it, but uh, spinach is also protein-rich as well. Yeah, the, there was a, uh, there were some E. coli strains a couple of years ago that went through uh, spinach, uh, so they were there was a warning about that. Um, spinach is uh, is another man-made hybrid vegetable, uh, which if you're trying to avoid that, then you avoid spinach. One of the uh, things morning, I've been... Uh, Dr. Callender, um, I was trying to think of the word that uh, getting back to the beans, I was trying to think of the word uh, that they were saying that make sure that you, uh, if you can cook the beans in a slow cooker, um, what, what I say is just, uh, I remember my mother and my grandmother cooking those beans almost all day long. And so, uh, so that's one thing I've learned in my research, uh, that the length of time that you have to really cook those beans, there's something in the beans that has to be released. And I can't think of the word, but you have to really cook those beans and they suggest a slow cooker or you just cook them long. So they're well cooked. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, beans have to, there is a, I can't think of the term either for what has to be released in beans. There's a little faster way than a slow cooker. And that's, well, first thing you got to soak your beans. You just soak them overnight. 
but you can reduce a lot of the time by putting them in a pressure cooker. So uh, I soak yeah. mine overnight. Uh, pressure yeah. cooker, uh, generally something like uh, 20 minutes on high in a pressure cooker and 10 minutes for a release. And that's a whole lot better than slow cooking them all day. Any other comments on this uh, important article? One of the things that I've been doing is um, making my own nut mix. And I combine um, the walnuts, the almonds, the Brazilian nuts, well, not so much the, the uh, Brazil nuts. And um, I use only nuts that don't have um, salt on them. And I add, add a few um, cram cranberry, um, um, cram cranberries to the uh, mixture. And we use that as a snack and limit the portions to like a handful of um, the uh, nut mix and have it as a snack in the evenings. And that seemed to curb our appetite. One thing that people do when they try to increase uh, a plant-based diet is they, they go to beans and salads, which gets really boring if that's all you're doing, unless you're loading up your salads with a lot of stuff that's bad for you. Um, but as an alternative to that, uh, if you go in the produce section and uh, you look what's in season, uh, what, you, what you've just never tried, try something different. You know, there's a lot of things like bok choy that have, have a wonderful flavor, wonderful taste. Um, but you buy things that are in season, Jerusalem artichokes. Um, if you don't know how to prepare them, just uh, do a Google search on how to prepare them. And it gets a lot of variety. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's a whole lot better than getting bored to death from beans and salad. Any final comments? Well, let's go to the next article. This is a very important article. and uh, This is a patient received a brain implant. Uh, the question is, uh, uh, for what? But... Uh, uh, the goal eventually is to try to overcome people who are paralyzed. Uh, uh, the fact that the recovering well does not address the issue of why he got the uh, implant, uh, because uh, the question is, is it gonna make him walk? Is it gonna overcome uh, why he's paralyzed? And so uh, this is the first step in trying to address a problem that we have not uh, addressed satisfactorily. There's uh, uh, few and far, be far between the cases that uh, uh, actually recover from paralysis from uh, ALS and uh, diseases like that. But this is a, a beginning of something that may turn out to uh, be helpful. But it's too early to say, but uh, at least uh, the first implant has been done now. And the, the real test is, will it work? And uh, that's, uh, that's down the road piece. But uh, this is a, a start. Dr. Callender, could you explain to us in layman terms, what is a brain implant? 
Well, it, it's okay. The the purpose of this, we're talking about people who are paralyzed, can't use their extremities upper or lower. And uh, this implant is, 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 is goal is to uh, knock out those impulses that uh, prevent you from being able to use your extremities. Uh, so first you have to do the implant, just see if you can do it without hurting the patient. And then, uh, then the goal is to have the implant to block the uh, negative impact of, of ALS, which paralyzes you, makes you impossible to use any of your, uh, your muscles. So okay, many... I understand like tooth implant, they go in your gums, they put in a little whatever, and then they let that heal, and then they screw in this tooth. Now, a brain implant, what are they putting they, in your brain? They, they put uh, a, a, a piece of metal that tries to block your, your neuro, neuro, the impulses that are blocking your, your nerves from functioning. And so it's not like that tooth implant at all. It's more like, uh, and they have implants of all kinds of things, but uh, a brain implant, they put in a, a device that uh, is supposed to over, overcome the negative effect of uh, a lateral cirrhosis, which results in you being unable to use any of your extremities and you eventually die because your muscles don't work and you asphyxiate. Uh, uh, as well as none of your muscles work at all, any of your muscles work at all. And this this is the first step in uh, trying to put in something in your brain that blocks uh, the uh, uh, those negative influences that paralyze you and prevent your muscles from ever working again. Uh, Dr. Calder, my question on that same line is that... Um, when the doctor, when a dentist puts a implant, um, it's not it's not in the area of electrophysiology, where if you put a piece of metal in a brain, uh, what kind of a surgeon does that? that a, a, a what kind of surgeon would do that? What is the name of that surgeon? Well, it'd be a neurosurgeon, probably. Because anybody who works on the, the brain is usually a neurosurgeon. Or but works I'm, on, on the ner nervous system is usually a neurosurgeon. Yeah, I was I was really asking about the field of science. Is it is some kind of electrophysiology? When you well, there are two two aspects. One is the, uh, the constructing the implant, which is uh, a really basic science, uh, and. Uh, this brain computer interface uh, is kind of like a, uh, a robot that uh, blocks uh, the, the efforts to paralyze you that prevents you from using your muscles. Uh, and uh, this is just the first step, but, but this is basic science that is applied to the brain. Uh, so far, we've done nothing that works in uh, addressing brain diseases. We haven't done anything effective for Alzheimer's or any other uh, uh, brain problem. And this brain-computer interface link uh, down the road is, 
is intended to do that. Dr. Cowan, I think it's uh, it's analogous to a computer chip. Yeah. And uh, they're able to communicate with it uh, wirelessly. I don't think they, they even have That's to correct. have uh, an electrical connection. You could do it wirelessly. So. Dr. Calendar, I heard you reference different diseases that they're trying to cure. Would, would this implant also help um, victims who have been shot or something like that? that would who are paralyzed, yeah. Anybody, okay. anybody. Yeah, it, it, it is. Of course, we know we don't know exactly, but it is intended because, as a matter of fact, there, there has been one case uh, where they they did put in a uh, chip that did overcome paralysis for somebody who was shot. But uh, this is just one in a million. Uh, so yes, down the road, it would benefit that person who was paralyzed because of uh, uh, traumatic uh, situations. Uh, but actually, this is intended to address those people with with. ALS, which is Lugaric's disease, for which there's absolutely no cure. Next one, please. Well, this is what we're going to face now. You know, this is, you know, we've been had we've had a period in which the Supreme Court is trying to overcome its it's mistakes that is made in the past uh, with uh, segregation. And now we are in a situation where uh, the Supreme Court now has done away with the diversity rules. And so you have a governor who's sued because they still have diversity rules. And then you have a president of Cornell University who's gonna be asked to resign because he's too slow in uh, eliminating the diversity standards. And this is, something that we're going to be facing now is the backlash uh, that occurs because uh, they've done the right thing. And now that they are trying to go back on it, they can't wait to uh, uh, jump right on it and get everybody to, over, to, to, to do away with all of the diversity rules. When in point of fact, the best thing we can do for the, for the world is to make it more diverse. Uh, so diversity begets ingenuity. Uh, so this backlash is, uh, is, is, is uh, going to hurt things. And so uh, 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 they are rapidly uh, trying to uh, uh, eliminate any diversity effort and uh, trying to, and what's going to happen is that uh, whatever gains we've made, they're trying to do everything they can to overcome. I thought it was interesting with the president of uh, Harvard, who was a black lady, uh, and, uh, and, you know, we had three people who testified. And what I thought was most remarkable at the end of the testimony, they had the picture focused on uh, the black lady. And I, and I looked at that and I said to myself, does that mean they're focusing on her when the three of them and two of them are white and one is black and the only person they're focusing on is the black person? And lo and behold, that's what they've done. And uh, that's what we're going to see come to pass over the next uh few months and years uh, with 
colleges as well as everything else. And then this is a, a good example. Yeah, Sad, as much as, as much as I love that last article about the brain, the brain implant, um, you know, that's uh, Elon Musk owns the company that developed that. And he's one of the biggest critics of diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. And it's become uh, code words or dog whistles for racism and sexism. Uh, the big thing that the right wing says about uh, their pushback on diversity, they say if you see a black airline pilot, uh, he's probably not qualified because he's just an affirmative action pick. And so that's their criticism of diversity. Uh, any any person of color, any black person in a, in a high position, th their automatic thought is that because of diversity, they're not qualified. Sad, sad but true. The thing that this reminds me of is the Baki decision where uh, black people were getting admitted to colleges, to your point, Daryl, and they might not be fully qualified, but they had to admit them in order to have some kind of uh, uh, diverse representation in the college. So then Baki came up and said, well, you're discriminating against me because I'm more qualified and you left me out of the equation. This just reminds me of this, that's all. Yeah, well, we know we have exactly. to be twice as qualified to get half as far. So anytime you right. see us in a, in a high position, we're, we're doubly qualified than compared to anybody else. <laughs> That's the facts of the matter. Yeah, and the other thing they say, too, on, on that point is that uh, a black man has to wear a three-piece suit and tie in order to get the same job that a white man can get if he's in uh, casual and jeans and stuff. Any other comments on this interesting article that's futuristic in terms of where we go from here? It's interesting because the uh, historically black colleges uh, are probably gonna be busier than ever now because many of the so-called white schools will, will not be accepting as many black students. So the historically black colleges should have a surge um, the only way to alleviate all of this is to take off every application what race you're in. And then that leaves a ball game wide open. So it appease everybody. So if you're doubly qualified and this other person isn't, and you're not basing it upon race or, or friendship or cronyism, you, all you're doing is basing it upon the qualifications. They don't know who they're going to get in there. They could That's, have not gonna happen. Okay, not, not so, yeah. huh? That's not going to happen. Okay. That's not going to happen. Their name. Yeah, because if it's if it's LaQuisha Johnson versus Becky Raisman, I bet you Becky will get the job. Yeah. <laughs> well, they could do like they did at IU. You know, a lot of our classes, well, that was also that way, was your social security number. And somehow when I was in a class of 500, because the school is big, of a history class. And I did not have, I don't think, an ethnic name. But anyway, this one teacher pointed me out in a lecture hall because I was the only one in there by my name. And I said, it must have been something by your social security number to identify you. 
uh, just just a note, uh, social security uh, numbers are issued by uh, states. Certain states have certain numbers. So that's enough. But also, Dr. Calendar, what, when we were all talking, the first name that came to my mind was Charles Richard Drew. What happened to him? Yeah, well, that's a good example. He, he, had, to, he had to resign because uh, uh, they wanted to uh, not give, they wanted to discriminate against black blood. And uh, he refused because that made no sense. And uh, so he resigned from the Red Cross, which is a tragedy because he actually is the father of the plasma, blood plasma. And of course that has saved millions of lives by now. And, uh, uh, but that, that, that's kind of a, kind of the world we live in. But uh, the irony of it is that you, you can't find a state that doesn't have an acknowledgement of Charles Richard Drew and what he did with blood plasma. But that's, 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 that's exactly what comes to mind in this world we live in. Okay, let's go to the next one, unless there's an additional comment. He was a Washingtonian too. Hey, was he ever? Yeah. Right. <laughs> hey, this is an article I put in because, you know, we talk about broken heart syndrome where you, 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 your heart is broken and so you get a heart attack and you drop dead. And, uh, some people didn't, didn't want to believe that this could happen, but uh, actually this is a syndrome attack of super, uh, stress and cardiomyopathy. And uh, of course, this does not involve people of color, but uh, anyway, uh, it's Scottish population, uh, but uh, uh, it, it is associated with uh, uh, 91 percent women you see here uh, and uh, uh, there was a increase in deaths among the people who had distress whatever the stress was whether it's a broken heart or something like that it was stress anyway uh, and so uh, for those who didn't believe you could die from a broken heart uh, this is evidence that stress can uh, cause almost anything. And yes, it, it can cause you to have a heart attack. Dr. Keller, could this, good morning, everybody. This is Sylvia. Could this be almost the same thing as depression? In terms of well, saying you have a broken heart. Well, yeah, I think any stress, you know, depression is uh, may often be a consequence of stress, but uh, because see, when you talk about anxiety, you know, that's stress, and uh, so that uh, so it's it's not depression per se, but it's it's really more um, you having a stressful situation that stresses uh, uh, you out so much that you drop dead. So it's this is different from a depression uh, because this is more of a, a positive correlation with something that happens uh, that is so stressful that uh, uh, your heart, uh, you have a heart attack. So that's a, that's a common way of putting it. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. Mm. If, if we 
can think back to when we had our first love and we broke up. We felt like we were ready to die. So I can understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. And many people actually, uh, uh, back to our point, uh, many people then became depressed and may even have killed themselves. You know, some people jumped off the roof and all that kind of thing. Uh, for example, I remember there was a case when uh, one of these young ladies, uh, there was a guy who, who wanted to have her, so he killed her boyfriend. And so she, in return, just jumped off the roof uh, because she, she couldn't stand it. But uh, uh, so that's, that's, that's how depression will do it. But this is saying that uh, uh, actually you, you, you're so stressed out that, you, that your heart stops working. There's a lot of country music based on this theory. Would this syndrome yeah, be more prevalent? Something? Yeah, would this syndrome be more prevalent in the elderly, where you're you're made of a lifetime dies, and you hear so many people that say, "Well, you know, the the husband died, and the wife died of a broken heart a month later." Yeah. Yeah. I I recall a situation where uh, the husband died in this on the stairs. And the wife died seconds later. Uh, so uh, as a result of the fact that her husband died. So yeah, it, it, it happens like that. And, and it, there's data that shows that within the first year after the death of a spouse, if you don't marry again, that the likelihood of death is, is, is very likely. That's why some people, as they lose a spouse, they get another one quickly. Some would argue that's not really the case. They say they have that person already lined up. But anyway, that that is a, an observation that has been made. Any comments? Additional comments? John, uh, John Tatum, didn't you have two cousins that died like that? that the husband died, and then a few days later, the wife or the other or yeah, something like that. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. One of your Vinnie cousins. Yeah, the Vinnie's, right? Yeah, I heard a statement one time that said, uh, "Husband and wives die within two years of each other." I don't know how true that is, but there that's are true. Many, yeah, that's many cases when it's happened that way. Yeah, one or two years. Yeah, yeah. Some no, some days suggest it's a year, unless unless you get married again. That's the other, the other option. If you marry again, then it doesn't apply. But mm -hmm. uh, if you don't marry again, it, it applies. Yeah, that's a caveat. Oh, my. I'm <laughs> going to tell you a, a true story about getting married again. Um, my stepfather had been taking care of his sick wife for like 20 some years. And when she died, um, he started talking to my mom and eventually he asked her to marry him and she wanted to wait a year. She said, uh, well, your wife just died a few months ago. Um, let's wait a year. <laughs> he said, 
Well, I may be dead in a year. So anyway, he convinced her to go ahead and marry him. I think it was like maybe a six or seven months from the time his wife had died. And mind you, they were elderly because my mom was in her 70s when they married. And he was older than her. He's a He was a World War I veteran. And this was in 74. And he lived 15 more years. <laughs> my mother. <laughs> so, uh, he was right, huh? That, 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 <laughs> In other words, he lived 15 more years than your mother? No, he lived 15 more years after they married. Oh, okay. After they married. Mama lived longer than that, but he lived 15 years oh. after they married. Okay, amazing. Yes, amazing. and he ended up, um, he was 96 when he passed. Wow, amazing. Wow. Thanks for sharing. Dr. Yeah. Callan, I think I'd like to address like, um, you know, when one of the spouses passes away, the other spouse, um, you know, who does not, you know, pass away. I think it's important that they uh, surround themselves with other uh, individuals, you know what I mean? And get more involved in different activities. Because I know my mom, when my my father passed, you know, I was asked, Mom, you think you'll ever marry again? I'm like, no. It's like, Okay, you know, like no, I'm I'm content, and but you know, she got more involved, like in her church, and um, another other individual, same thing. They got more involved in different things, and so uh, that depression uh, was not always there. And so I say it's important that they don't always marry again, um, but they just try to. It's important that uh, they surround themselves with family and other activities to keep them busy. But I know there's one guy at my church. His wife passed, and he. Every time he sees a person, he's like, hey, how you doing? I'm looking for a wife. So, yeah. you know, it depends on the individual. And you know, everybody's like, stay away from him because he wants to get married again. So, you know, it depends on the individual. But it's important, you know, when that other spouse does leave, that that um, that, that that surviving spouse actually keeps themselves busy. Or you, help, you help keep them busy, you know, get them involved, stay around them, and um, just keep continuing to do things with them. Like my mom, you know, she had a challenge of doing finances, which she never ever did while my, my father was alive. And so, you know, working with her, trying to overcome that that problem, you know, she she was challenged with it, but she did overcome it. And, you know, just trying to work with them and keep in, yourself involved with the spouse that survives is important, I think. Sylvia, you make a good point because if you, choose not to remarry and you surround yourself and can keep from being lonely and depressed, surround yourself with our families and friends and all, that's one side of it. But then the other side is that if you do get married again, then your time is going to be, you're not going to be lonely, you know, if you get married again. So you're going to be around that another person. So, yeah, those two activities I think are good. Just a sidebar, my mom, my dad had died eight years before she remarried, but she did keep herself busy because she moved in with me and helped me raise my kids. <laughs> yeah, keeping busy keeps mm -hmm. you from being lonely, keeps you from being depressed. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go to the next one. 
Yeah, this is something that we've talked about for the last three sessions and it's pretty critical. Uh, and uh, uh, the reason we're talking about it because it gets worse all the time. And uh, they're very concerned about the fact that uh, without blood, uh, trauma patients won't survive. Uh, people who have cancer operations and many other operations won't survive. So that we're desperately in need of young individuals to donate blood. And this is the third week we've talked about, but uh, it's because it's getting worse rather than better. Yeah, Dr. Callan, this is Sylvia again. I know the last time we had this article, I was mentioning that, you know, every time I, I tried to give blood, that, you know, I was rejected, but um, I went and bought Don's, um, um, John's vitamins, the vitron C. So I've been taking that for the past uh, week or so. And I made an appointment to give blood on the um, 9th of February. So I'll see if my uh, whatever levels come up so that I may be able to uh, give blood. Because I used to give all the time, but uh, for the last several times I try to give, I've always rejected. So I'm going to see if taking the iron pills will help me out. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Keep us, share, share, share it with us as you take your steps. That's that's just two weeks away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, the article in it says, and I thought this was the case, that COVID has slowed uh, giving blood down, has slowed it down. COVID, yeah. Well, exacerbated. The problem. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as a, as an NIH donor, um, you know, we we before COVID, we could just you know call and go in and you know do a donation. Since COVID, you have to come in, you have to get screened, you have to uh, wear masks the whole time you're in there. Everybody in there has a mask on now, uh, so. You know they're they're being cautious. Plus the the screening process now, you know, takes you through so many different uh, uh, precautions. You know the the medication you're you're taking, the the people you're around. Uh, you know whether you had a, had an accidental uh, stick, uh, whether you get blood, you come in contact with somebody else's blood on any level. Uh, you know your your relationships. I mean, they they're really getting uh, uh, picky about it, and you know they're trying to avoid you know contaminating the the uh, the, the 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 resources. You know, the blood resources. So yeah, yeah it has definitely changed. You can't go in there sneezing and coughing and stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, blood donation is known to improve skin aging due to the reduction of skin iron. So you donate blood, you'll look better. You'll look cuter. Skin <laughs> will be smoother. Look at All John right. Buchanan. Look how smooth his skin is. <laughs> okay. Next article, please. It's amazing how many things have been occurring since we're doing gene uh, uh, Chris Cas9 and genetic uh, 
interventions. Uh, many things are now occurring that never happened before. Uh, and so here's a guy who uh, was born deaf uh, and was turned out to be a genetic disease and they uh, uh, injected a, a gene that uh, knocked out that gene and lo and behold, he could hear again. Uh, wow. This is uh, something that's never happened before. And uh, uh, this is just an example of what happens with uh, when you actually interact with genes. Now, here's the only only thing about this that, that we need to be aware of is that uh, uh, we don't know what is the downside of of that in terms of what is the what's going to happen with uh, when we we add new genes uh, and knock out other genes uh, twenty years from now. We don't know five years from now. Ten years, but uh, uh, but but still a good idea to uh, uh, interact when you have diseases that uh, certainly cause deafness or blindness or, uh, or threaten your life. So and and therefore the gene therapy is something that uh, uh, is to be used uh, uh, judiciously. And this is a good example of the benefits of uh, uh, gene therapy. And this now is becoming uh, much more common than ever before. Uh, as, as you know, the uh, FISCAS-9 uh, inventors got the Nobel Prize, I guess it's three years ago in 2021. And uh, so this is... Uh, something that we're going to see more of. And we, we talked recently about the fact that uh, this will cure uh, sickle cell disease and will cure uh, thalassemia as well uh, down the road. And, and uh, it's also making uh, xenotransplantation possible. So there are many things that are gonna occur as a consequence of gene therapy. The question is, uh, what's the long-term consequence? And that's something we just have to wait and find out. Dr. Atto has his hand up, Dr. Callender, Dr. Atto. Yes. Dr. Atto, you're muted. You're muted. Rosie, you're muted. We can't hear you. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is this is very interesting. This is uh, a very interesting topic. Uh, I'm just wondering, do you, does anybody know the method of delivery of the therapeutic gene into the host? Is it by IV or oral or otherwise? The method of uh, delivery. In this case, I don't know, but it's usually by uh, IV. But in this case, I don't know. Okay. It's such a rare uh, uh, cause of congenital deafness. I, they don't say in this article. They don't say in this article how they how they administered it. Okay. 
Most of the uh, articles they don't go into the details. Yeah, how they how they uh, administer the, <coughs> the yeah. gene therapy. Mm-hmm. It implies that it was uh, uh, done in the air, but it doesn't specifically say so. Okay. It implies that, but it doesn't really say so. But that's an amazing compliment, going from never hearing a sound and being able to hear again. Amazing. Reckless. I saw something that said an implant. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think it was talking about uh, the gene therapy. It was talking about cochlear implants. Yeah. So something that said injection too. I didn't. Hearing traffic noises just days after the treatment. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. Very, very interesting. Yeah, it's amazing what we're going to see. You know, it's uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. We have talked about the uh, APOL1 gene Mm -hmm. associated with uh, kidney disease. Uh, Mm -hmm. And many people aren't aware of the fact that that same gene uh, actually protected Africans from sleeping sickness. Uh, And we now know that 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 gene, which is great for elimination of sleep and sickness, predisposes you to kidney disease. So the question is, as we uh, do this gene therapy thing, will this have a downstream effect that we're not aware of at this point? But this is something that we will learn about. It's amazing how we take some of these gifts for granted, seeing, hearing, feeling, touching, you know, forgetting what a great gift it is. There's an article about the deadly fungal infection that's on the rise. Seems like uh, there's always something on the rise, whether it's a bacterial or fungal infection or viral infection. One thing is clear that uh, people with weak immune systems are far more likely to get any of these infections than anybody else. And I'm pointing out that uh, we're all dependent upon a, a competent immune system to keep us alive. Actually, it first identified in 2009, so. 
Dr. Callender, wasn't there another, um, I don't know if it was a, a fungus or a bacterium called Candida? A different Candida is one of the commonest uh, uh, fungal infections. Yeah. There's a number of Candida infections. This just happens to be one of them. But this is not, this is, a, of course, uh, uh, Candida albicans is probably the commonest. But there are a number of uh, Candida fungal infections. Why Seattle? I don't know. Remember that? That's where the uh, uh, COVID uh, started to show up. Remember the choir rehearsal? Six people uh, died from it. You know, right in the after a choir rehearsal in Washington, I think it was Seattle, but I'm not sure. The state of Washington, you're right. I, my sister lives in Redmond, Washington, which is a, a suburb of Seattle. But yeah, I remember that vividly. That was a very scary, and that's when we talk about herd. Um, Immunity. Yeah, herd immunity on this group session. Okay, let's go to the next one, please. This is a medication that uh, was used for type 2 diabetes, but one of the things that came out of it was that this terzepatine uh, actually protected the diabetics from kidney disease. And so uh, this now is being looked at as a new treatment for patients who have kidney disease and diabetes, which the number one cause of kidney disease in the United States is diabetes. And so this then makes uh, for a good uh, therapeutic treatment for people who have diabetes and those who don't have diabetes, but have kidney disease. So uh, this is an, uh, uh, something that is shared so that uh, people with other diseases can benefit from it. Dr. County, we say that um, Black people have higher rates of uh, kidney disease and diabetes. That's correct. Yeah, two to three times the incidence of our whites, right. And diabetes is the number one cause of kidney disease, with hypertension being number two. A little short story. Uh, my daughter um, has pancreas cancer. And, I mean, I, I'm sorry. She has diabetes. <laughs> Diff big difference. Um, and the doctor, and I talked to Dr. Powell about this, one of her doctors told her that she had type one and type two. And she was taking uh, this new drug that came out, Ozempic. And um, she said it was helping her. So, I mean, when something's helping you, you leave it alone, I guess. Dr. Powell said he didn't know how a person could have type one and type two at the same time. Okay. 
Well, this is uh, kind of even more frightening than ever that vehicle tire dust produces uh, microplastics <laughs> that go into the ocean <laughs> and contaminate it even further. So uh, this is a shocking development. It's not bad enough that's in the plastic uh, and, and the water, and the, I mean, the bottled water, but uh, uh, vehicle tire dust uh, produces ocean microplastics. Uh, so that uh, that's something that uh, uh, I don't think anybody ever thought of. I don't know. It's amazing what they find out. But uh, there's in the UK, uh, one trillion particles for every uh, uh, kilometer driven. That's shocking. Uh, wow. <laughs> And they found in marine animals, so they impacting the animals, marine animals. So just like uh, plastic bottles are affecting us, the uh, uh, ocean microplastics from the from, from the tires is, is affecting the, the marine animals. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I, I want to comment on that too because uh, you know. With uh, with my clubs and organizations, we uh, uh, scuba diving uh, pay a lot of attention to the the plastic that's going into the ocean. But you know, this is the first time we heard about tire dust. I didn't even know tires were made out of plastic at all. But you know, the 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 contamination affects the coral. Fish eat the coral. Uh, bigger fish eat those fish and then we eat the bigger fish so that tire dust when, when you eat fish ends up in us so that's another source of plastic that gets into our system um, there, there's a video on here that I wanted to, to look at but I think we should save it if we have time at the end okay so in my mind, that raised the question, how much of car tires are made of plastic? And Google says car tires are made from around 24% synthetic rubber, a variation of plastic made using petroleum byproducts that breaks down as the vehicles travel. So that's why I feel so rubbery. Well, the rubber is a good, is a good part of a tire. That that didn't the rubber never caused anybody any harm. It's the synthetic rubber. It's the plastic in the tires is causing the damage. Okay, let's go to the next one. <laughs> this is the interesting auto that uh, tries to help you to uh, the ten places you like to catch COVID, <laughs> according to one doctor. Uh, as the COVID, uh, as the number of cases uh, of COVID is increasing, and they mentioned first theme parks when you go to Disney World and places like that, um, they have that as number one, and go on down the list. 
Zoos and aquariums, number two. Movie theaters. How many of you wear masks in movie theaters? I do. I don't go to movie theaters. I stream at home. Okay. I know sports are going to come up. I haven't been to a theater since before COVID. Long before. Well, you know, nowadays, and when I go to the movies, there's very few people in the movies. <laughs> Especially if you go at... Uh, uh, if you go after four, it probably have more people. But uh, uh, so it's not like it used to be. It used to be crowded. Not as crowded. Yeah. Place they do matinees for senior citizens. <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Callender, they now have you, you have reserved seats. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. And public transportation, number five. I don't take the subway anymore. I used to take it all the time. Since COVID, I have been not taking any public transport, not often, very rarely. But that's I a great, a, it's a great source. I wear gloves when I go on the metro. Number six is uh, airplanes and airports. I think airports and really, uh, I'm not so so worried about the airplane because they have good. Uh, Ventilation, but the airports are notorious. Grocery stores. Well, it seemed like about a third of the people nowadays in grocery stores are wearing uh, masks. Hospitals, not so much anymore. Uh, certainly on the wards, yes. But uh, I, I encountered one of my one of my friends who came to the hospital, they're not giving out masks anymore when you come to the hospital. So, so hospitals are getting the source. Schools and daycares, uh, daycares are notorious. Fitness centers, I'm surprised at that. But then, how many, I don't know, many, many people who go to fitness centers. But it, uh, I know one of my friends who, Got his osteomyelitis from the fitness center. Well, I go to the swimming pool, the public swimming pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would seem like, you know, if you're sick, you wouldn't go. Yeah. Well, you're right. That makes sense. When, I got yeah. my fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting article. This is an <laughs> uh, this is an article that I thought was uh, uh, it's kind of the only problem with this one is a little long, but uh, we could probably watch the first part of it. But uh, what 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 it was very true is that uh, uh, maybe we watch the first part of it and I'll make my comments afterwards. While we wait for the queue up. Sporting events was not on that list. Open, yeah, you're right. It wasn't, yeah. Neither was choir rehearsals. Biomedical institution in the country. 
And I've watched some of my colleagues who have spent two to three years to define the crystal 3D structure of a protein. Well, now that can be done or two or three minutes. And that's because of the work of AlphaFold, which is a derivative of DeepMind, Demis Asabis, and John Jumper, recognized by the American Nobel Prize in September. What's interesting, this work, which is taking the amino acid sequence in one dimension and predicting the three-dimensional protein at the atom atomic level, it's now inspired many other of these protein structure prediction models, as well as RNA and antibodies, and even being able to pick up all the missense mutations in the genome. And even being able to come up with proteins that have never been invented before, don't exist in nature. Now, the only thing I think about this is it was a transformer model. We'll talk about that in a moment. In this award, since Demis and John and their team of 30 scientists don't understand how the transformer model works. Shouldn't the AI get an asterisk as part <laughs> of that? I'm going to switch from life science, which has been the singular biggest contribution just for me, to medicine. And in the medical community, the thing that we don't talk much about are diagnostic medical errors. And according to the National Academy of Medicine, all of us will experience at least one in our lifetime. And we know from a recent Johns Hopkins study that these errors have led to 800,000 Americans uh, dead or seriously disabled uh, each year. So this is a big problem. And the question is, can AI help us? And you keep hearing about the term precision medicine. Well, if you keep making the same mistake over and over again, that's very precise. <laughs> we don't need that. We need accuracy and precision tests. So can we get there? Well, this is a picture of the retina. And this was the first major hit, training 100,000 images, supervised learning. Could the machine see things that people couldn't see? And so the question was to the retinal experts, is this from a man or a woman? And the chance of getting it accurate was 50%. But the AI got it right 97%. So that training features are not even fully defined of how that was possible. Well, that gets then to all of medical imaging. This is just representative chest X-ray. And in fact, with the chest X-ray, the ability here for the AI to pick up the radiologist, expert radiologist, missing the nodule, which turned out to be picked up by the AI as cancerous. And uh, this is, of course, representative of all of medical scans, whether it's CT scans, MRI, ultrasound, that through supervised learning of large labeled annotated data sets, we can see AI do at least as well, if not better, than expert physicians. And 21 randomized trials of picking up polyps, machine vision during colonoscopy have all shown that polyps are picked up better with the aid of machine vision than by the gastroenterologist alone, especially as the day goes on later in the day. 
we don't know whether picking up all these all these additional polyps changes the natural history of cancer, but it tells you about machine eyes, the power of machine eyes. Now that was interesting, but now still with deep learning models, not transformers, we've seen and learned that the ability for computer vision to pick up things that human eyes can't see is quite remarkable. Here's the red picking up the control of diabetes and blood pressure, kidney disease, liver and gallbladder disease, the heart calcium score, which you would normally get through uh, a scan of the heart, uh, Alzheimer's disease before any clinical symptoms have been manifest, predicting heart attacks and strokes, hyperlipidemia, and seven years before any symptoms of Parkinson's disease to pick that up. Now, this is interesting because in the future, we'll be taking pictures of our retina as checkups. This is the gateway to almost every system in the body. It's really striking. And we'll come back to this because each one of these studies led, was done with tens or hundreds of thousands of images with supervised learning. And they're all separate studies by different uh, investigate. Now, as a cardiologist, I love to read cardiograms. I've been doing it for over 30 years. But I couldn't see these things, uh, like the age and the sex of the patient, or infection, <laughs> fraction of the heart, making difficult diagnoses that are frequently missed, the anemia of the patient, that is the hemoglobin to the decimal point, predicting whether a person who's never had atrial fibrillation or stroke from the ECG, whether that's going to likely occur. Diabetes, the diagnosis of diabetes and pre-diabetes from the cardiogram, uh, the feeling pressure of the heart, hyperthyroidism, and kidney disease. Imagine getting an electrocardiogram to tell you about all these other things, not really so much about the heart. Then there's the chest x-ray. Who would have guessed that we could accurately determine the race of the patient, no less the ethical implications of that from a chest x-ray through machine eyes. And interestingly, picking up diagnosis of diabetes, as well as how well the, di the diabetes is controlled through the chest x-ray. And of course, so many different parameters about the heart, which could never, radiologists or cardiologists could never be able to uh, come up up with, uh, but machine vision uh, can do it. Now, pathologists often argue about a slide, about what does it really show. But with this ability of machine eyes, the driver genomic mutations of the cancer can be defined, no less the structural copy number variants that are accounting for present in that tumor. Also, where is that tumor coming from? For many patients, we don't know, but it can be determined. Uh, through uh, AI, and also the prognosis of the patient just from the slide by all of the training. Again, this is all just convolutional neural networks, not transformer models. So when we go from the deep neural networks to transformer models, this classic preprint, one of the most cited preprints ever, attention is all you need, the ability to now 
be able to look at many more items, whether it be language or images, and be able to put this in context, setting up a transformation uh, progress in many fields. The prototype is the outgrowth of this is GPT-4 with over a trillion connections. Our human brain has a hundred trillion connections but one trillion, just think of all the information knowledge that's packed into those one trillion. And interestingly, this is now multimodal with language, with images, with speech, and it involves a massive amount of graphic processing units, and it's with self-supervised learning, which is a big bottleneck in medicine because we can't get experts to label images. This can be done with self-supervised. So what does this set up in medicine? It sets up, for example, keyboard liberation. The one thing that both doctors, clinicians, and patients would like to see. Everyone hates being data clerks as clinicians. And patients would like to see their doctor when they finally have the visit they've waited for a long time. So the ability to change the face-to-face uh, -face contact is just one step along the way by having the liberation from keyboards with synthetic notes that are driven, derived from the conversation, and then all the downstream normal data clerk functions that are done often off hours. Now we're seeing in health systems across the United States where people, uh, physicians are saving many hours of time and heading towards ultimately keyboard liberation. We recently published with the group at Moorfields Eye Institute led by Pierce Keene, the first foundation model in medicine from the retina. And remember those eight different things that were all done by separate studies? This was all done with one model. This is with 1.6 million retina images predicting uh, all these different uh, outcome likelihoods. And this is all open source, which is, of course, really important that others can build on these uh, models. Now, I just want to review a couple of really interesting patients. Andrew is now six years old. He had three years of relentlessly increasing pain, arrested growth. His gait suffered with a dragging of his left foot. He had severe headaches. He went to 17 doctors over three years. His mother then entered all his symptoms into chat GPT. It made the diagnosis of occult spina bifida, which many had a tethered spinal cord that was missed by all 17 doctors over three years. He's had surgery to release the cord. He's now perfectly healthy. Okay. We, we can stop there if you like. Okay. Who was suffering. It's a very, very interesting uh, uh, presentation that I wanted you to see, to see where we're moving uh, in medicine, that uh, uh, AI is going to uh, revolutionize the practice of medicine. And uh, one of the positive things that he's talking about is that uh, you get back to the point where the patient spends more time with the doctor, doctor spends more time with the patient. Uh, and... Uh, also get the right diagnosis at the end of that. And so 
Uh, that's what I wanted. Any comment on that? I open the floor for any discussion on that very interesting presentation. I think it's fascinating. I agree. Very fascinating. You know, I, I joked one time about uh, having my annual physical with on the phone with my yeah. daughter. But <laughs> maybe that's the future. <laughs> well, of course, the difference is that uh, hopefully uh, they can have all the data, uh, yeah. but they can still have time to talk to you. Yeah, you know, that yeah. that's the that's the one thing that he pointed out that I thought was remarkable. And you have more time to talk to the patient and let the uh, AI do a lot of the rest. Uh, all the hard work. <laughs> I thought it was good for all of you to see what our future holds, and to see if you had any additional comments. Yeah, advances in advances in medicine are just amazing. I mean, not only with AI, but we were talking about the brain, the brain in, uh, implant, the uh, genetic editing. You know, I'd I'd much rather see this on the nightly news than I would about uh, the the hoopties attacking a U.S. ship. I know that's yeah. important, but you know, most people don't know the amazing advances that are being made in medicine. Any other comments? I, I, this is Sylvia. I, I think there's probably be less stress on the doctors, you know, and um, I know one time we had an article about doctors committing suicide and, you know, just depression and being worn out. Um, maybe this will also kind of help, um, you know, it help them in terms of giving them advanced information about uh, a medical situation. So, yeah, this is fascinating. This is on the screen now. Um, I think it's talking about second opinions from other human doctors, but actually AI could be your second opinion. Well, I think that it's better to be incorporated into the whole scheme of things and uh, allow you to have more time to spend with the doctor so that uh, the hum hum humanity aspect of the practice of medicine is maintained, which has <clears throat> lost has been lost to a great extent. Doctor, I tell you, you want to say something? Well, no, not really. Thank. Uh oh, um, not really. Thank you. I, okay. I also yeah. thought that um, the fact that they were looking at the eyes, I thought that was quite striking that they could pick up so much from just looking at your eyes. Yeah. I, I've noticed uh, when I've had my physicals, uh, which I do annually, that uh, the, the doctor actually spends a lot of time on the computer in the exam, you know, putting in uh, symptoms and, you know, getting feedback. The same thing that Daryl does with, with Google. I, I think doctors are doing, <laughs> doing that just the same as, as, as Daryl does looking up symptoms, looking up uh, medications uh, and different aspects like that. And we've always done that. Looking at your history. I, but I, 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 it just seems like they're doing it more and just a natural uh, progression over, over, well, we, over time. We've always done it. You just weren't around to see us do it because that's usually done maybe after you leave or before. Uh, because, but uh, uh, what happens is that uh, when they had the computer right in front of you, they would do all of that right in front of you so you could see it. 
but often that was done. Uh, hey, Dr. Callender, um, after looking at this article, I, you know, I felt insulted when I was in my physical and my doctor was typing on the computer. You know, now I, I have a better feel for exactly what she was doing. I was like, talk to me. I mean, you know, okay, you, you on. What's going on here? And you know, even though she would talk, but she'd go back to the computer typing in stuff. And so now I, I have a better uh, feel for, I mean, even now the technology has advanced that maybe even now when I go in there and she's on the computer, I'll have a greater appreciation for what she's doing. Well, you know, the real solution to that problem though is to have scribes uh, because mm. uh, so, that, so that she can really pay attention to you and let the scribe uh, write down those other things because now you don't have a scribe and she somebody's got to do it or else she's not going to be reimbursed. Yeah, my, my, yeah, doctor my primary have care a doctor has my primary care doctor has a scribe, and so uh, you know doing all the input and that makes a huge difference. Yeah, huge difference. Yeah, my eye doctor has a scribe. Has someone? I've never heard of that. What what is <laughs> what is it? That's the person, person taking doing the paperwork. Mm -hmm. Oh doing yes, the typing. yeah, yeah. What doing it is, is that what is it is that you have one person, you give the history and all that, and the uh, person writes down everything so that the doctor doesn't have to put it in the computer. Uh, the the scribe or often a medical student. Uh, we'll do that for him so that the doctor can spend all the time with the patient and not uh, uh, be accused of spending more time with the computer than mm -hmm. he spends with the he or she spends with the patient. They're saying scribe, but they're putting it right into the computer as you talk, as the doctors tell them. They had the pad right there. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Putting it in. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's 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 uh, let that be the last one because it's ten thirty. Yeah! <laughs>